Welcome to Movie Maker. My name is Tim Malloy, and today we have a wonderful episode for anybody who loves the Scream films, as I do, and anyone who wants a better understanding of what producers do, or at least what one producer does. He is our guest, William Sherrick, producer of Scream 5 and the new Scream 6, as well as films including the recent Suspiria remake by Luca Guadagnino, The House with the Clock in Its Walls by Eli Roth, and Ready or Not, which was directed by the Scream 5 and 6 directing team of Matt Bettinelli Open and Tyler Gillette, who are also known as Radio Silence. I like this trend of dual directors picking a new name, and I guess theirs didn't fit together as smoothly as, say, Oscar winners The Daniels, uh, but they went with Radio Silence, which is pretty cool. William Sheriff was born into the film industry, as you're about to hear him say. His father was the late Fox executive and Academy president Tom Sherrick. And hold on to your floating door because I'm about to name a lot of movies. Who was involved in films like Titanic, Die Hard, There's Something About Mary, Wall Street, Independence Day, and Star Wars, The Phantom Menace. His son William Sherrick started out producing films like The Messengers, Daddy Day Camp, and Bachelor Party 2 before scoring a hit with Role Models. And then he veered hard into 3D with films like The Wolverine, Godzilla, Mad Max Fury Road, and the 3D version of Titanic. He also continued to produce films and is about to tell the story of how he helped salvage the Scream franchise from the smoldering wreckage of the Weinstein Company. He'll also give us some inside detail on the making of Scream 5 and 6, tell us what's potentially happening with Nev Campbell, why the Scream movies still work after all these years, and, and, and we will not reveal the killers of Scream 5 or Scream 6 so you can listen to this safely. I should also mention, because it'll make this interview a bit easier to follow, that the new Scream films are written by James Vanderbilt and Guy Busick. And of course, Scream was initially created by Kevin Williamson, and the first four films were directed by Wes Craven, who passed in 2015. We're going to dive right into this with William Chirac asking me, 1990s gangbanger style, where I'm from, and me repping hard for San Pedro, California. So Tim, where are you from? Uh, I'm from Los Angeles. I'm from San Pedro. Nice. Um, which no one in Los Angeles. Where did you go to high school? San Pedro High. Oh, cool. Yeah. Where were you? I grew up in Calabasas. So I went to oh, Calabasas. Nice. Yeah. So let's get into Scream. Yeah. Just to kick it off. I really enjoyed this movie. I like all the Scream movies, but I had a lot of fun in this one because I felt like y'all ramped it up quite a bit. Uh, I don't know if there was a conscious decision to go more violent more just flat out scary. I think a shotgun in a convenience store is a lot scarier to most people than um, a slasher in your backyard. That, that doesn't seem as uh, likely to happen. Was there a conscious decision to sort of take things up a notch in this movie? Yeah. I mean, the second you use New York as a backdrop, yeah, you have to just increase everything, right? And that was... That was part of the fun of the decision that was made was how do you subvert everybody's expectation at every moment? Mm-hmm. Uh, and how do you make, how do you use the city to make it more scary? Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, everybody was on that page and we just, we all focused in on it and we all just went and delivered it. Right. And I think that the benefit of being on movie three with radio silence mm-hmm. as a group, the benefit of the returning cast being part of the team. Like we just knew what everybody was capable of. We knew our entire cast were just a group of gamers that would show up to do everything Jamie and Guy came up with in their heads. Um, 
And then it was the perfect time to just give Matt and Tyler even more resources to do the stuff that they were ready to now go do. Mm-hmm. Um, and everybody, look, as the as the on the ground producer and the one who had to kind of navigate it all, everybody showed up and everybody was ready for this version and everybody was on the same page. And we there's nothing more fun than everybody setting out to make the exact same version of the movie. Mm-hmm. Right. And that was we all talked about it because we're all friends. Right. It's not just, hey, new group of people. Let's go make a we're making a movie. And thank God this was a group of friends going to do it again. I imagine you're of the age where just as you were getting into scary movies, Scream was kind of reinventing scary movies. Um, You know, interesting. Like for me, it was just this massive zeitgeist change of like, oh, wow, you can do this. Mm-hmm. Like this is a thing that can be done. We're allowed to have, we're allowed to laugh in these things. <laughs> like it's not just scary. And I remember that piece of it yeah. right where you're just like oh wow this is different um and i think that what it did was it reframed for me the idea that you could do different things in genres regardless of just horror mm-hmm. and i just i wasn't that wasn't something i'd ever thought about i don't think mm-hmm. looking back you know it really did kept what kevin did in that script was so remarkable, right? You just, you forget that that was the first of all of those things. Yeah. Right. Killing the most um, successful actor in the movie in the beginning, right? All of those things were new. Um, Commenting on, commenting on what was going on in high school, like all of those things and having fun with it while this crazy slasher movie is happening. (laughs) It was just so bonkers. Um, I remember and, going through the 70s and the 80s and slasher movies being regarded as universally regarded as the worst movies and then having them turn into some of the best movies and now we're at a point where it's a genre that's really well respected. Um, yeah. And the point where Slumber Party Massacre was on Criterion not too long ago. Right. Yeah. And did it hold up for you? Absolutely. It's a great right? movie. That's the thing. You know, the movies, and I think it's one of the things Matt and Tyler do better than almost anybody in this generation. The use of practical effects mm-hmm. really does withstand the test of time different than visual effects. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. And I think that the thing that slashers have always done, right, is that it's low tech. Yeah. And low tech is so real. Yeah. You know, that you, it just withstands time different. You're not using... And that's not to say technology hasn't made things a lot easier in certain genres. Don't get me wrong. I love it and I use it and it's, it's one of the best things ever, but for hardcore slashers, regardless of the tone of the slasher, right? The practical effects just withstand a test of time and it's gross and it's fun. And you know, you're able to keep the camera on your lead actor and not switch out to a stunt double, like all of the things that green screen and other things force you to do in cuts and how you cut a movie these practical effects and slashers don't require. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, do you have a VFX background? Can you talk about your entry into movies? Like how did you get involved in the industry? So I grew up in the business. Mm-hmm. Um, all I ever wanted to do was make movies. And then about a decade into my career as a producer, I had made a bunch of movies and some television 
conversion and accidentally started what became the largest 3D conversion company in the world. Mm-hmm. And then, which was called Stereo D. So I founded that company and then we sold it to Deluxe. Mm-hmm. Um, and it became, you know, and then I became president of the creative group of Deluxe, which is the largest post-production company out there. So all of a sudden I had a visual effects team, a 3D conversion team, a color team. And I learned that entire side of the business um, on accident, right. And running, you know, 4,000 employees and around the globe. Um, so got on, on a visual effects side, got to work on some really amazing projects. You know, we did the 3d conversion for Titanic and Jurassic park and, you know, Guillermo's first 3d experience. Like, so we just got, I got very right moment in time, very lucky to spend some time with some of the most amazing filmmakers in history um, seeing how they approach stuff from a visual effects standpoint, you know, cause the stereo conversion really is a, it takes every plate, every frame and makes it a visual effect. Yeah. Um, so that was a 10 year blip in my career where I went and did, uh, that crazy thing. Now I knew a little bit about that. I didn't know the accidental part and maybe I should have Googled a little more, but I don't think I've heard that. How, how is it accidental? Oh, that's a long story with a bottle of tequila. <laughs> <laughs> Um, my two, the two partners in that company, it was truly one of them said 3d is going to be a thing pre avatar and ended up, we ended up buying a piece of software from a gentleman who had created this 3d conversion technology out of Japan named Kuniaki Izumi. And that was about 11 months before avatar came out. Incredible. And then avatar comes out and we're sitting on it (laughs) and literally we went from zero employees to 250 in three months. Mm. And then our first movie was actually airbender. Mm-hmm. We converted airbender for paramount. And then from there started working with Marvel mm-hmm. and did iron man three and then just never stopped, never turned back. And it just, and then Jim Cameron, tested everybody and we got unbelievably lucky that we we got to do Titanic and that that turned that that put put us on the map in a different way right because right. the godfather of the genius of 3D gave us Titanic gave you Titanic or gave you no Titanic we were the ones who did Titanic in 3D oh when it was redone in 3D of course okay yes right. so when he gave us Titanic because this is now post avatar coming out yep mm-hmm. Okay. When he gave us Titanic, it just changed our profile, right? Then it becomes every big filmmaker who's looking to use that process. You don't need to be convinced anymore what company to use, <laughs> right? Because we were anointed and he he made us, you know, one of the things about working with Jim, and I know stories out there, but I found it some of the most creatively rewarding things that I ever did in the visual effects business in that he forces you to a level of discipline and creative, a baseline of just creative perfection, Mm -hmm. but purely for the enjoyment of watching it, not about pixels. Like it's an interesting, he's so good at saying, this is what we're going to focus on on this shot. And this is what I care about. Something's not perfect in the bottom corner. It's not about beating you up over that. It's making sure what your audience is looking at is perfect. And there's just nobody better at it than him. I mean, he is, he just makes everybody around him better in that space. And you watch it, like you watch the second avatar, you sit there with your mouth open the whole time. You're just like, oh my God, this is gorgeous. Um, 
Yeah. And I got that being in that side of the business was interesting because you get to see the, you know, there's two types of genius filmmakers out there from my perspective. There are the people who use the technology that exists better than anybody else. And then you have the other side of the genius filmmakers that invent the new technology. Mm -hmm. right? The George Lucas's, the Camerons that, that push the medium to a completely different place. Mm -hmm. And then the other geniuses, right? Take all that and figure out how to use it perfectly in their world. Right. Cause then like we, for instance, we, when I converted Jurassic park, the first time I ever watched it was with, uh, I'm still going to call him Mr. Spielberg. I got to watch it in the Amblin screening room with him, his head of post-production and two of my stereographers. We watched it on DVD and he just explained how he wanted the movie to look in 3d. It was just us. And it was like listening to a professional golfer who remembered every shot he ever took. Like he knew every lens of every shot. And that was the first movie with a full CG character, mm -hmm. right? He used visual effects better than anybody had to that point where Lucas, the Lucas of the world invented it, right? And gave you ILM and all of that. And then he used it to use it as a main character in his film for the first time, right? So you see both sides of the coin. So um, it was cool. That, that part of my life was cool because I got to understand a different side of how movies get made. But you have this respect for practical. Oh, yeah, because I think they're they're used in it's the ability to use them for what they're they should be used for, right? Certain certain things require visual effects. It's not and you should use them and, and, and crush it, right? And use the best. And these artists are amazing. And then certain times practical delivers. Yeah, it's and not there's a, a good reason to use not not a binary practical versus VFX. I mean, you can do you no what it's for exactly and i think that the thing about slashers is that you're not trying to compete with what lucas and marvel and the fast movies are doing mm -hmm. right you can't compete in that visual effects land nor should you try mm -hmm. so the practical stuff just gives you a different feeling mm -hmm. so and that delivers how did you start working with the radio silence guys? I mean, I assume this goes back to ready or not, or is it even further? Yeah. Yeah. So we put, we put them on ready or not and they're just awesome. Like I have no notes. <laughs> they're awesome. And then we had so much fun with them on that movie and what they were capable of and watching them deliver that tone that we wanted. Mm -hmm. um, and then when Gary Barber allowed us to run with the scream franchise for him, um, we, we at Project X, Jamie, Paul, and I knew right away that we wanted them to do it. Like mm -hmm. we knew. And then we, we set a, um, a general meeting with them and Gary Barber and Peter O at Spyglass. To them, it was a general meeting. Gary knew why they were coming in, but we couldn't tell them that it was for screen at the time. And, they were like, why are producers setting up general meetings for us? But they were friends. So they're like, yeah, we'll go do a general meeting for you. Like it was, it was one of those things. And then I think it was in the elevator on the way down because Gary brought up in the room that Jamie and Guy were writing Scream. Wow. And they were like, that's so cool. Because that was a secret too. 
Wow. And they didn't realize it was an interview. Wow. Nor were they supposed to. And it, but we had folk, we knew right away, we knew very early that that's who we wanted to do it. Wow. Uh, and we were right. I mean, they are, they're, forget the fact, like, look, for us, they're family. So they are, we love the three of them. We are family friends now. We've done three movies together. We're about to start our fourth. Like they're, they're more than just colleagues at this point in our lives. So, but how- that's not enough to hire somebody. We also knew what they were capable of coming off ready or not with what we made that movie for and delivering the tone of scream was the most important part mm-hmm. because that tone is, and yet you had to go after super fans, right? It had to be, and they're super fans. They are full on horror fans. Oh yeah. Across the board students of it they love it they're friends with everybody in that space like everything about them bleeds this genre um so we knew they were the ones then it was just about getting everybody on board um and not getting over our skis and making sure spyglass bought into it which they did and gary trusted us and and look took the risk right because all they had done in that tone is ready or not um and it was the best decision we ever made for that, for this franchise. You know, I, I want to get into just how you got involved with Scream in the first place, but first I want to jump on what you said about the obsessive fandom. I mean, I've seen fans online debating things like whether a particular character mourned another character's death long enough. Um, there's a thread going around now about why one character is wearing sneakers at one point who later turns out to be the killer and shouldn't they be wearing boots? And people are really just like, you know, analyzing it frame by frame. Was there anything on set, because there's so much internal logic to keep track of, that you guys really had a lot of discussions over? Was there anything where you're just going, wait, how do we piece this together? Is this consistent? Or was it like that every day? Because you have- Every day. Yeah. Was there anything that was a struggle to figure out? No, I don't think it's it's that it's a struggle to figure out. I think it's a, you just at all times focus on the North Star of these fans. You want to deliver for them. Right. So the fun is the Easter eggs. The fun is creating all that stuff. Are you ever going to be hundred percent on it? Maybe, maybe not. You don't know. Right. Their fans are always going to find stuff that either tracks or doesn't track. Right. And make up whatever story they, they get excited about inside the movie we're telling. And I think the meta, the meta-ness of it, if that's a term allows for that. And then it's really about putting a crew together that gets the joke and the fun of it. So like Avery, who is our costume designer on Ready or Not, who we brought on to do six, you know, what she did with these costumes at the party, the frat party, and then on the subway, I mean, there are some deep, deep, deep cuts, right, in in some of those costumes. Um, And as a group, everybody just made sure we were focusing on it at all times, right? That That was always the mantra, is just knowing that you're doing it for the fans. Right. Jamie and Guy start that way with the script and they think about it. They put so much time and effort into, okay, what's the big meta idea? Mm-hmm. And then from there, you kind of filter in. And then and then when Matt, Tyler, and Chad get involved in the, okay, how are we going to turn this into a movie from the script? Like they think about it. So at every stage, we're all, every new eyeball that gets involved has to be part of the team. Mm-hmm. And so you, 
because it's a family, nobody's making a different movie, right? We'll fight it out before we go to camera to make sure we are all making the same version of the movie so that the thing you're asking about doesn't fall through the cracks. I'm going to try to phrase this in a non-spoilery way. Um, yeah. In almost every screen movie, there are multiple killers. So when you're working on one of these, do you all know at every point in the screenplay who's doing the killing behind the mask? Or are you sort of making that make sense after the fact? If you have... No, we know going in. We we have how we... Because you have to track the logic. Mm -hmm. Right? So you need to make sure the logic tracks. So we know. So you figure out the... the you're not outlining figuring out where it goes you're figuring out who the killer is and what the motive is and then you're going back and figuring out where the kills are well so i think i don't think you can distill it down to that i think jamie and guy when they write it mm -hmm. put that thought in so it's on the page that when you when they turn in their first draft mm -hmm. regardless of what development happens from that point they have worked out the that the logic makes sense, right? The, the logic holes theoretically shouldn't be there. Yeah. That doesn't mean we don't make changes and 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 have thoughts and ideas, but the logic from the pitch of how the killer or killers are capable of doing it, yeah, makes sense. Yeah. So that's that that's on the page, and then the fun is as we cast the movie, who gets the whole script and who doesn't. So that some of the cast doesn't know they may or may not be the killer. Oh, that's fascinating. Who in this case didn't know? A couple of them. To, For a to, while. A couple of the killers didn't know they were their killer until what? Oh, and a couple of the non-killers didn't know that they weren't the killer. Like, we we keep it as far as, we go as long as we can. In, in five, we actually have multiple endings of the script. Mm -hmm. So that they really didn't know. I love that. Yeah, and that's the fun, right? Because we like to, the thing about our my sets and, and as a sort of a company line, it's really hard to make a movie. Separate, separate of good movies. Like it's really hard to make a movie. It might as well be hard with people you like. So we try and create a really fun, familial environment for everybody, the cast and crew. And in that, I think it comes off on screen. Like we are all still friends, the whole cast, the core four, like they're the text chain from five hasn't stopped. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and like I, they called it the, they called it the Sherrick Shack or Camp Sherrick. Every Sunday I flew in bagels and locks from somewhere else around the world. Uh -huh. um, and we all had brunch together, you know, like it's, you, you want that sense of family and community to show up on screen because they're friends. And then all of a sudden it's a whodunit movie. Yeah. Right. Like that's where it starts. Um, and it's so much more entertaining when they actually are friends because yeah. it shows on screen, yeah. right? You can fake it to a point, but you get on screen in six, like you see it, they're friends. Like this core four, they're really friends in real life and it shows. And they're all unbelievably talented actors, yeah. um, but they're also genuinely friends. So how did this franchise first come to you? How did you get it? So Gary Barber who bought the Weinstein Library with Lantern Capital and called it and created Spyglass Enter Media Enter Entertainment Media Group um, is somebody that I have known. I was eight, nine years old. Wow. Maybe 10. Um, 
he was one of my dad's closest friends um, when he was president of Morgan Creek um, way, way, way back. And then my partner, Paul Neinstein, was also his first business affairs executive in Spyglass 1.0 20-something years ago with, that he had with Roger Bermont. So we've known Gary forever. Um, he is a close friend. When we started Project X, he had just closed the rights to the Weinstein Library. Wow. We went to lunch with him and we said, Scream's in that library. He said, yes. I said, can we have it? And he <laughs> said, yes. Well, I, I really want to redo that franchise. We said, great. Can we run with it? Um, and he was gracious enough to say yes and trust us and know that we, we as a company would always have his best interest at heart in what we did with it. And it was always going to be a good experience for all of us because we knew each other so well. And then from there, Jamie, our third, you know, my other partner, um, it was always one of his favorite, favorite horror franchises. So he brought in Guy Busick, who wrote Ready or Not for us, who's also a friend. And Jamie and Guy decided we're going to write it together. And they came in and pitched it to Garrett, what we wanted to do with it. And we were off to the races. Wow. What was, was, is, is there a, do you think that Scream 4 would have been the last of the Scream movies if not for this? I mean, was the Weinstein Company going to do anything else with it um, before everything happened that ended that company? Look, I can't speak to that. I have no idea, right? There was 10 years. I genuinely have no idea. I think that once the library went into bankruptcy, I think it all depended on who took it out of bankruptcy, mm -hmm. right? The fact that it was Gary who knows how to clean up a library, mine it, successfully turn it around, made the entire fandom lucky, right? Because you had a steward at, with him that allowed for us to do what we did for him, right? Like that's the genius of Gary is that he's so good at identifying where there's value and then allowing people to go extract the value. And for us, that's creative. For him, it's the value. And he, you put those two things together and you have five, Scream mm -hmm. 5, right? Which is, let's start again. Um, he is the ultimate partner to do that with, right? Because it's the, here's what we're going to go do. Once he buys into it and approves it, he really lets you do it. Um, and, you know, the first thing we did was Jamie, we had on just a pure creative level, not business, not financial, pure creative level. We have to make sure Kevin Williamson is happy with this, mm -hmm. that we're going to go do this. It doesn't work without Kevin wanting to be involved again. Mm -hmm. That was our North Star um, because it had been a decade there was a ton of, I wasn't there for it, but I guess there was drama, you know, some of it's public, like the drama that was the end of the Scream franchise after four. So for us, the, mo what, the most important piece to start was Kevin. Mm -hmm. Gary agreed. Um, so Jamie reached out to Kevin, went to dinner with him, and then started that process. And then we all had dinner with him, the, all of Project X and, and Kevin, and and he got comfortable with what we wanted to do. Um, and so we brought him back to EP, the, the movies. And that was for us, like the ultimate blessing was Kevin being okay with it. Did like you that was because that had to happen. Do you lay out a whole storyline for him or do you just give him a general sense of where you want to go? 
Um, in the first meeting, you'd have to ask Jamie. I think Jamie pitched him. I believe he pitched him the idea for the movie that we have. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know if he pitched him the detail. I don't know how detailed the first pitch was. Yeah. But it was much more of a whatever, whatever had happened in the past. We can't change that, but we're not that. Mm-hmm. And we we are here because we love what you created. And if you can see yourself being involved in it again with people that genuinely love what you did and are massive fans and want to build it in a great environment, yeah, that's that's what we want. And he said yes, and he's become a really good friend and has been part of five, six, and now like he's just he came, you know, we brought him to set and he was part of press. And like I think he if you'd you'd have to ask him, I mean, he he has said to me he's really been enjoying this, which is it's why you do it, right? It's like he we're all here because of him. Yeah. You were also very gracious with Nev Campbell in the latest movie in treating the Sydney character. Everybody's very respectful of her. Um, are you trying to keep the door open to bring her back? Or is it just let's be let's be friendly because she's been really good to everyone franchise-wise? Both. Both. I, I think those are not mutually exclusive, right? I think the door is always open from my perspective. Um, she's Sydney Prescott. She's amazing uh, in that role. And then the second part of that is she's an amazing person. And yeah. I loved working with her on five. Um, I would love to work with her again and scream or not scream. Like she's, she's just awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, both of those things can be true. Mm-hmm. Right. If it's not right for her, it's not right. But I, I'm not, I, I would like nothing more than to work with her again. Like she's awesome. She's unbelievable as a as a castmate to the to the kids in five. Um, we had a ton of fun with her in Wilmington in a really weird experience because COVID was still going strong. Um, we spent a lot of time playing board games on the weekend as a group, and she was unbelievably gracious. And somebody who's been playing this character for a long time and a character that she crushes as a as a horror icon, right? Yeah. And is it just a money thing? I mean, it can be resolved with. I mean, the answer is a qualified maybe. I, you know, that's a that lives in a different in a different world, and everybody has to do what's good for them. And I think that the hope is there's a way to find common ground at some point. Yeah, yeah. And then the last thing I wanted to ask is, how far out does the plan go? I mean, there's plans for Scream Seven. Is there an arc that projects eight movies, nine movies, ten movies, or are you trying to leave things where they could? You know, I'm going to steal a quote from one of my my partner, Jamie, who I think says it really well, which is every movie has to be its own meal. Mm-hmm. Right. So that if there's never another one, you you really had a great time and it gave you everything you needed. Mm-hmm. The genius of what Kevin created in Ghostface is that we don't have to deal with why is ghost why is our bad guy still alive? Because every time it's going to in a mask. Right. Whereas other franchises have to, horror franchises have to deal with how do you keep this, how does this bad guy keep surviving? Yeah. Right. We don't have that problem. So as long as we can keep coming up with fun places to put Ghostface, I don't think this specific franchise needs an end because it's always somebody new. And a whodunit movie is always fun. Yeah. Right. They're always fun. And I think that. 
that's the genius of what Kevin created 26 years ago or whatever. You know, the, the, I, I don't have the exact date in my head, but that's the great part about Ghostface. And the other thing that I think lets a movie like this survive, a franchise like this survive, is that new things are constantly happening with kids and the way they communicate and the way they interact with the larger world. So there's always something to comment on, mm. right? The meta side of it, the fun is there's always something new, right? To attack as we think about what the bigger themes are of each movie. Um, every time there's a new, there's a new technology or a new way to communicate or a new way to pick on other people. Like that's what we comment on, mm -hmm. you know, toxic fandom and all of this stuff. Like, that's never going to go away and new technology will provide new insane ways for people to pick on each other. And we get to horror movies really do a great job, especially slashers of commenting on what's going on mm -hmm. in the bigger world. Um, and we get to do that with Ghostface, right? We get to take that and put it in insane situations. <laughs> Do you think there's something to, with so much sort of free-floating anxiety around around social media, around, oh, have I checked this platform? Have I checked this platform? Is there something sort of satisfying about having one villain or <laughs> one villain portrayed by multiple people um, who you can sort of focus all of your fear on? Ask that question a different way. I just want to make sure I understand the question you're asking. I find it very satisfying to go into a movie theater and stop worrying about anything else going on in my life. Um, did I check this? Did I check that? Did I leave the social media equivalent of the oven on? Um, and just worry for two hours about who this person is going to kill next and who it is. Um, do you think there's something a little bit therapeutic? And I don't mean to overstate therapeutic, but is there something sort of pleasurable, enjoyable about focusing all of your fear and anxiety on one figure for a little while? hundred percent. Right. And I think that's because you get caught up in the who's behind the mask, right? It's not, it is, oh, you know, the fun line of, of screen movies, right? It's always someone, you know, yeah. so the bad guy isn't a space alien. It's not, you know, a, it's not a mythological creature. It's not, you know, a different kind of horror icon. It's somebody in the friend group. So yeah. you're, you're, We've it's a mystery, a whodunit movie in a horror in a horror slasher film. And I think whodunits are so much fun. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And I think you're right. You just because you get caught up in the whodunit, if we do it right, you separate out what else is going on in the world and you spend the whole time going, huh, I wonder who did it. And the fun of Scream is look, you might get one of them right, but what if it's not only one? Yeah. Do you get them all? <laughs> you know, and it's every hindsight, everybody I knew. And then, you know, I'd love to, I'd love to do the test screening one day. There's no way to actually accomplish it, but it'd be so much fun to do the test screening one day where you actually stop the movie two times before oh. the end. And you say, right now, write down who you actually think the killer is now. So you can't say later that you knew it. Um, it'd be so much fun to do that exercise. And we do it just, you know, we do it on in very small scale while we're cutting the movie together. We'll put a group of 10 or 12 people together and sit down and stop the movie and have them write down who they think did it so that we know- Family or strangers? That we are, 
they're what I would call one click removed, right? They're, we all have, we all have kids and nieces and nephews with friends at the right age groups to kind of put 10 or 12 people together that are not Hollywood centric, but love movies. And, you know, we bring them into one of, you know, a screening room and we, we stop the movie two or three times and have them write down and they're not allowed to change their answers because at every stage you want to believe that you think, you know, who it is, right? That's the fun of the movie and a look or something in the cutting process can change that dramatically. How do they do? Are they? Oh, it's all across the board. Yeah. It's all, we never had anybody in this one specifically get everybody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That would be totally impossible. Yeah. Um, so, and you know, at different times, you see, we saw a bunch of at the different times they got the right version and then changed it because of how our movie plays out. Um, so, and that's the fun. That's how you know you're cutting the right movie together from what you shot. So cool. Yeah. It's fun. It's so much fun. It honestly is so much fun. And I figured out one of them. And I was like, oh, I'm so good at this. And then there's more. And it's like, I had no idea. Completely blindsided me. Great job. Just a super entertaining movie. Yeah. Thank you. What was your favorite? What was your favorite set piece? Oh, my God. What's your favorite? Honestly, the one I brought up, the the bodega is truly scary. Because if you've lived in New York and I've lived in New York, that does feel like it could jump off at any time. The latter is super inspired. Um. The finale is quite good because you, right up until the reveals, you have no idea what's going on. And there's some really solid misdirection. Um, but I think I'm going to go with convenience store just because it was so different from the others. And the you do set it up like there's no way they're going to get out of this, but then there is a logical way for them to get out of it. Right. It's really yeah, well done. It's a, thank you. It's a, it's a really cool scene. Making that choice was to do that was a ton of fun. And, you know, it's putting that, the shotgun in his hand and and seeing that image and um because yeah. you do right you, i've been in that store many a time in my life at different hours of the day yeah. and at any moment it could go bad yeah. <laughs> it can go south depending on where you are yeah there's like the i don't know if you ever have the nightmare where you're supposed to run somewhere and you just can't run um you just find yourself sort of paralyzed but it's a little bit it's the closest i've seen to that being replicated in a movie it's really well Really oh, awesome. I'm glad you liked it. It's um look, we definitely make them so that mega fans, regular fans, or people new to it just have a good time. Right. Because that's the part of that's the reason to do these movies. It's not homework. It's really to go and enjoy it. 100 percent Um and playability is such a big, it's a big deal because I also think it's the kind of movies that will continue to work theatrically. Mm-hmm. Right. They're fun to watch with a large group of people. Absolutely. Yeah. So anything I should have asked that I didn't ask anything we should have gotten into that I'm going to kick myself about later. <laughs> um, I think, look, the only other thing that as I think back in five and six and sort of the luck we've had with it is just, it took a lot of people and, the seeing where the cast, this young group of kids went from five to six and the relationship of the core four and how great they all are. It's not easy to pick up that mantle. 
Yeah. He's been around a long time. Yeah. Um, and the four of them not only picked it up, but they're they're pretty remarkable kids, you know, and their performances and what they brought to it and the individuality mixed with working as an ensemble. Yeah. Um, it's pretty remarkable. Uh, they are, they're really talented. And then the new kids we brought in and, and not everybody's kid, you know, and Dermot and it's, and then bringing um, Kirby back in Hayden who had taken some time off acting everybody performance you know we can we can set up and give them a good script to work on and matt and tyler can direct them well but they still got to show up and do the work yeah and these kids i call them kids i mean they're, they're only because i feel like they are my kids in, in the sense of i'm the old guy in the group now um but they overperform, mm. and it's because of the work the hard work and they they protect each other and i think that not every group of filmmakers gets that lucky, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? Because not every movie is made with people that are doing the movie for the right, you know, every movie's made for different reasons. And this one, everybody came and continues to show up to do the thing we all want to do together. Um, and without that, for this kind of movie, I don't think we succeed. That's you know, point. you can't, yeah, you can't, you have to have those performances to to let the who done it work. Yeah, yeah, right. And um, and they do like they're fun to watch. You know, there's a there's a series of sequences in the movie that like four or five sequences in a row. There's no action. Mm -hmm. yeah. And they from when they leave the the um, the frat party, there's four or five moments. Then from that point forward. Where there's no action at all. It's just character stuff. And we spend a lot of time with them and the movie never gets slow. It never gets boring. And it's because you they're putting in the work and you enjoy watching the four of them do what they're going to go do. Well, you start with a twist on top of a twist, which I think buys you some, it, it buys you audience buy-in who are going, I have no idea where this movie is going. What's your favorite sequence? Do you have a favorite sequence or are they all your children and you can't? No, I think, look, I have, I think I have favorite, I think, let me start over. I think that I answered that question by saying there are things about each sequence that make them my favorite for different reasons. Yeah. Um, I think the execution of the subway mm -hmm. is remarkable for what the guys did and our production designer building that subway car and being able to do that because I I think that is a crazy fear to have in New York. Talk about things that are possible. Oh, yeah. um, and then the latter sequence is just awesome intensity, right? It's just so much fun. Yeah. Um, the end is one of those where the Easter eggs and the getting to remake all of the props from all the, the whole franchise was just so much fun, <laughs> right? Doing that. It was so much fun. Um, the bodega, I agree with you. There, that is the moment in the movie where you go, oh, this is a different ghost face. Nobody's safe. Mm -hmm. That's really, for me, where you go, we're, we're in New York right now. Mm -hmm. Like That's the first moment where you go, wow, this is New York. And even people in public have to worry. Mm -hmm. And I yeah. think that sets up that intensity for the whole movie. 
because now you're never safe anywhere. Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. And that to me is a very special moment in a, in a screen movie because it really does ratchet it up. Yeah. And then the other one that I think I never want to forget about because she just crushes it and had not had the chance in the franchise to do it is Courtney's big mm-hmm. fight scene. Oh, fantastic. She, she showed up to do that work and, you know, I am a massive fan, right? For Courtney Cox in everything she's done, like I'm just one of those massive fans, right? I got, I rewatched the entire Friends series with my daughter, you know, and so, cause she saw it as a new franchise, right? To her, it's new, right? <laughs> Friends, like she's 13 and just found it. Um, so getting to work with Courtney was truly remarkable. And she read that sequence and said, I'm in and put in the work and it just, it's all practical. It's almost all her. Like you can't hide. And she did it and just crushed it. One thing I love about that one is that Ghostface talks to her as if he's the previous Ghostface. Um, which is which works not because he's a an actual ghost or something, or is you know Freddy and rejuvenated, but because it's built into this movie that whoever the killer is has so much institutional knowledge of the previous killers through their research and their obsession, which is yes. just in a way scarier, which I really liked. Oh yeah. Very cool. Yeah. Right. And then you get to the end, you go, Oh, right. That makes sense because they really have the whole history of the franchise. They it's, have everything. It's so absolutely nuts that they're taking a first person approach to all the previous ghost faces. Um, maybe to scare her, but maybe because they really believe they're, continuing the work, which I really liked. That was that was right? a new level of of bonkers scary. Oh yeah. awesome. I'm glad you liked it because that's why we do it. And you know, getting to getting to work with all these fun people. It's um it's tough. And there's nothing better post-release than getting to talk to people who enjoyed it. <laughs> right? Like that's the, that's the fun because you know like it's doesn't always go this way in our business. <laughs> you never know when you're making the thing. <laughs> yeah well I, th- I think you guys clearly believe in what you're doing and um have enthusiasm for it and i think that comes across i mean it isn't like it doesn't feel like we've taken over this ip to make some money like it feels like it's in your bones which no we loved it i mean yes look nothing better than it being successful because you get to keep making them yeah. but we really do love the franchise like we genuinely were fans yeah. Right. And it's fun that Gary allowed a bunch of fans to go make them, <laughs> you know, and look, I give him a ton of credit because there were seven other ways this could have gone. Right. If he had said no to us, there were, I guarantee you, there are 20 people that would raise their hand instantly. Yeah. Um, and he said yes to us. And, you know, we, we take it seriously. We really do. We could have gotten the bad CGI version. It could exist without question, yeah. right? It absolutely could. And I, I don't want to comment on whether that would be a good or bad version because you never know, right? Like it's not, nobody sets out to make a bad movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think it's Scream. Yeah. We try every time to really make a Scream movie. 